Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 29 of the Healthy Gut Podcast, and today I'm joined by Erica Julson. Erica is a registered dietitian based in Los Angeles who specializes in food sensitivities and other adverse food reactions. She helps her clients find relief from chronic inflammatory illness through diet change. And she also blogs on her website, ericajulson.com, sharing delicious recipes and nutrition articles with her readers. And on today's show, we talk all about the difference between food sensitivities, food allergies, and food intolerances, and how we can test for it and what we can do about it. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Erica Julson. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Erica Julson. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, and we're sitting here in sunny Los Angeles, which is really lovely to be face-to-face with my uh, guest on the Healthy Gut Podcast because it's a real treat. Normally, I'm doing it online, so it's really lovely to be sitting here. And you you have a Master's in Nutritional Science. You're a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified uh, LEAP therapist, which stands for Lifestyle Eating and Performance. And I'd really love to get into how you came to be doing all of these wonderful qualifications and why um, you're so passionate about working with people around their, uh, the dietetics and the nutrition. Yeah, well, it's sort of a weird story. I, I a little bit fell into the world of food sensitivities. Um, I originally have a background in psychology and biology. So my undergraduate um, degree is in psychobiology and Briefly, for um, a couple years after I graduated, I worked um, in health psychology at Carnegie Mellon University, and I helped run a lab there. Um, And I was doing research on the brain and the effects of mindfulness meditation on your health and how your brain's working and your immune system and all those things. Um, And I, I just really love science, and I love interpreting science and then helping people implement um, what we find in research in their lives. And I feel like that was sort of the missing piece for me when I was working in the trenches of research. Like, you know, you could be working on a study for like five or six years before it actually gets published. um, And then you have to wait for people to then implement that information. So I felt a little bit too behind the scenes for my personal preference. I really wanted to be more involved with helping people. Um, And I just, I've always loved cooking and super passionate about nutrition and just uh, having fun in the kitchen, basically shopping at farmer's markets, things like that. 
So I just followed my gut and left the field of health psychology and went back to get my master's in nutritional science. Um, and that took a few years. I am a registered dietitian. So um, in addition to getting the degree, I also had to do about a year of unpaid interning, <laughs> uh, working under some other dietitians, which was great. Um, and then I passed an exam and officially became a dietitian in 2014. So it's been a few years now, like three years or so. And once I entered the field, <laughs> I thought I could draw upon my background in mindfulness and kind of help people with mindful eating, um, intuitive eating, things like that. I was really, I really love that topic and I'm passionate about it, but I missed a little bit of my nerdy, sciencey side <laughs> and, um, and bringing cooking into my life. So I kind of reevaluated about a year into my practice and thought, okay, you know, is this really the right fit for me personally? Like, I love this message and I think it's really important, but is this my message to be delivering <laughs> to the world? Um, and it kind of felt like it wasn't. So I took about six months off and uh, actually focused on writing and blogging and doing more recipe development on my website and reevaluated like how I could be true to myself and also help people. And then I actually, I'm a member of a few... Um, groups for registered dietitians here in the U.S., uh, one of which is Nutrition Entrepreneurs Dietetic Practice Group. And I'm pretty active on their listserv. And I just kept seeing people talking about helping people with food sensitivities and things like that. And it piqued my interest. <laughs> so I, you know, just jumped right in and um, decided to complete the training to become a certified LEAP therapist. Uh, and then just, you know, it been, it's been about... I don't know, a year and a half now that I've been working exclusively with people who suffer from food sensitivities. Um, and it's so gratifying. I get to bring some of my cooking knowledge and expertise to help people if they're, you know, if they can't eat a certain food due to, due to food sensitivities, um, how to make modifications in the way that they cook and eat and things like that and still totally enjoy their, their food. So um, I love it. <laughs> And as one foodie to another, I totally understand mm -hmm. the uh, how wonderful food is and, and and how enjoyable it can be to be working with others uh, and helping them eat a really delicious array of foods. Totally. And yeah. not feel deprived, just feel well and happy and like feel well in their digestive system and, and things like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about food sensitivities and many of my listeners um, have issues with food because they um, experience currently or have had SIBO. Uh, so food is often something that can give them huge flares. But let's talk about the difference between a sensitivity, an allergy and, and intolerance um, because I think sometimes people misuse those words and perhaps don't appreciate what they really mean. So if you can give us a, a, um, a description of what they actually mean and what's happening in the body, that would be great. Yes, that's a great, great question. Um, I totally agree. And even within the medical community, I would say the terminology is still not pinned down. So two people could be talking about the same phenomenon and calling it two different things. Um, that's still something to be worked out, I think, in the literature. But um, broadly, there's two broad ways you could have an issue with food, um, either your, you could have a reaction that involves your immune system, which would be the case with food allergies and food sensitivities, or you can have a reaction that does not involve the immune system, which would be food intolerances. 
Um, I guess I'll just start with the food intolerances because that's the most simple. (laughs) And then we'll dive into the two that do involve the immune system. Um, But basically, if you have an intolerance, you are having trouble digesting the food. So the most common one that everyone thinks about is lactose intolerance. Super, super prevalent. Um, But basically, with with lactose intolerance, I'm just going to use that as an example. Your body is not producing enough of the enzyme called lactase to break down the milk sugar lactose. So if you're not breaking it down, it's traveling through your digestive system and getting fermented by your gut bacteria and creating gas and bloating, diarrhea, things like that. Um, So that's one type of way that you can have a bad reaction to food, but it doesn't involve your immune system. It's just purely you just can't digest it well, and that leads to to problems down the road. (laughs) Um, And then the other two, allergies and sensitivities, do involve the immune system. Um, And there's kind of a way, a classification system, Gel and Coombs um, came up with a classification system for ways that you can have a negative reaction to food that does involve your immune system. Um, And so there's four different pathways. There's type one hypersensitivities, type two hypersensitivities, type three and type four. Um, And types one, three, and four involve food. Type two is like another pathway that doesn't involve food at all, um, but still involves your immune system. Um, So basically type one hypersensitivities uh, are traditional allergies. So this is when you eat a food, your body is creating IgE antibodies to the food and causing symptoms. So uh, actual true allergies, um, you have a reaction with these cells called mast cells that are located on your tissues. So you have um, mast cells on your skin, on the lining of your airway, in your lungs, on your GI tract, things like that. And if you have an allergy to a food, you have Ig antibodies that are sitting on those mast cells waiting to detect that food and then cause that mast cell to release pro-inflammatory chemicals that then cause symptoms. So the typical allergy, you know, you eat, say you're allergic to nuts or something, you eat that nut and then you have, you break out in hives on your arm or something like that, or you you start wheezing um, because mast cells are degranulating on the lining of your lungs, things like that. Um, That's a regular allergy. Um, And you can't detect that uh, using the test that I use, the mediator release testing, because the mast cells are located in your tissues and not circulating around in your blood. So you wouldn't pick up on that response by doing anything with the blood. The only way you could use the blood to check for allergies would be like actually looking for the IgE antibodies for the allergens, which is a totally different separate test. So with allergies, it's pretty clear and immediate. The reaction, like you eat the food and, you know, within 30 minutes or so, you probably notice that you're having an issue. And also allergies are pretty well understood and documented in the medical community. So, you know, there's like allergists that you can go to that specialize in just allergies. Um, So I don't really work specifically with allergies. (laughs) I I work with the other two types of reactions, um, which are considered food sensitivities. Uh, where your immune system is still reacting to something you're eating, um, but through different pathways. So for type 3 hypersensitivities, your body is still making antibodies to combat the food you're eating. Um, Some of the ones that are commonly seen are like IgG antibodies, uh, but there's a couple others as well. Um, But it's making antibodies to the food and then triggering your white blood cells to release pro-inflammatory mediators like um, cytokines, interleukins, um, histamine, things like that, that cause symptoms, that cause 
inflammation, swelling, pain, things like that. Um, so that's one pathway. <laughs> you have antibodies that aren't IgE antibodies that are triggering your white blood cells to release inflammation. And that's actually, this is a side note, but there are tests out there that are different from the one that I use that just check for that pathway. Um, so IgG-based food sensitivity tests, which are somewhat popular. They're a little cheaper, um, so people gravitate towards them. Um, I don't know if this is going on too much of a tangent, but um, the, the main downfall of those types of uh, food sensitivity tests is that they're only measuring the IgG pathway, and they're missing the fourth pathway that I'm about to talk about. Um, so it's a little bit of an incomplete picture of what's going on in the body, and you might miss some of the reactions that, and triggers that things that you're eating that are contributing to inflammation. Um, and additionally, just because you created IgG antibodies to the food doesn't mean that you're then going to have a reaction. Um, it's a normal process to create IgG antibodies to the food and kind of flag them for further inspection. But that doesn't mean that then in every single case you created the antibody and your white blood cells agreed it was a threat and then created inflammation. So you could get a lot of false positives on just an IgG test as well. So. That is so interesting because I'm thinking of my own uh, blood test that I had some oh, about two years ago now uh, that showed up IgG markers. IG, we did IgA and IgG markers and I did wonder, you know, how accurate is the test? So with you just saying that it can show up false positives, that's that's really interesting for me to hear that. Yeah, and similarly I had another dietitian friend who before she had heard about the test, the mediator release test that I use got tested for IgG and she had had a strawberry smoothie, for example, that morning and came back reacted to strawberry because, of course, she had just eaten it. Her body had created IgG antibodies to that food just as like, oh, hey, this might be something you want to check out. But she didn't experience any symptoms that day. And then she was like, oh, that's weird. Like, why would I come back like reactive to strawberries? And then she also had been eating gluten-free this whole time um, because she noticed, you know, that she was having negative reactions whenever she ate um, gluten. So, of course, because she wasn't putting any gluten or wheat into her body, that didn't come back reactive. And then she was confused a little bit um, and thought, oh, that means I can eat pasta and then had pasta and then felt awful. So, um, yeah, there's a little bit of uh, inaccuracy on those types of tests for sure. Um, so that's a great point that we're going to get to at the end after I finish explaining the next pathway, um, why it's important to actually look at the end point of all these reactions, like whether or not your cells are creating inflammation, like who really cares how it's like the exact pathway it's happening. It doesn't really matter. Like the thing that matters is whether your immune cells are releasing pro-inflammatory mediators, which are the things that cause the symptoms. So anyway, <laughs> back to the last type of uh, food sensitivity reactions is a type for hypersensitivity. And this does not involve antibodies at all. So it actually is when your white blood cells themselves just detect the food as a threat and then decide whether or not to release uh, pro-inflammatory mediators. So any sort of test that's only looking at antibodies would not pick that up. So that's a huge strength, in my opinion, of this specific test, um, especially because type 4 hypersensitivities are the ones that are mostly involved in people with IBS and migraines, which are two of my favorite types of clients to work with. <laughs> mm, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, wow. I'm I'm sitting here learning so much and also thinking about my own um, medical journey and the testing that I've had done and and some of the gaps that I can see perhaps have been there in in some of the tests that we've done because we've only been looking at one thing. Right. And it because it is still sort of an emerging field like I hate to say that because we've known obviously that diet plays a role in many health conditions for a long time but it's just not especially in the US not well researched and not well funded because <laughs> it's natural diet therapy and not a drug or something like that so um I would say in Europe they're a lot more advanced and their journals put out a lot more information about like inflammatory responses to food um that we're just like not reading here. <laughs> so um, yeah, this company, Oxford, they are the only one doing the this type of mediator release testing. And they're, they're based in Florida. And then they also have a lab, I think, in Poland. Um, but other than that, like, yeah, in Australia, unless you can overnight your blood to Poland or the United States, like, it's not really even an option. So um, yeah, that probably explains why you haven't heard of it before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's so many tests that mm -hmm. if I lived in the States, uh, then I'd be able to have access to. But just, you know, uh, us Aussies uh, don't have a lot of the tests. So I just haven't made it to Australia mm -hmm. yet. We don't have the laboratories doing them yet. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. I'd like to talk about enzymes um, because one question that I've often wondered is, can we um, alter uh, the enzymes available to um, break down food. So we talked about um, not having the right enzymes to break down lactose. But if we are, um, and there are many people listening to the podcast that are down to say five foods because they've become so reactive to everything. So they're eating chicken and, and some carrots and maybe some white jasmine rice. When they then try and reintroduce other foods, they can have a really strong reaction to it. Is that because they no longer have the enzymes available to process those other foods? Probably not. It's probably more likely that it's a food sensitivity type of reaction creating inflammation. Um, I would say in terms of intolerances, by far the most prevalent is lactose intolerance. To break, If you're having an issue with lactose intolerance, um, actually the lactase is... Uh, released from like the lining of your intestines. So that's much more directly involved with like, oh, if you have damaged intestines and things like that, um, you're going to have those types of symptoms. Whereas the other types of digestive enzymes are actually released, you know, into your digestive tract um, in, from your pancreas. So it's less likely, I think, to have an issue with that. Although it is definitely possible people do take um, external digestive enzymes usually temporarily if they're having an issue until they're able to heal. Um, but it's, I would say it's like a little bit of a controversy if you keep giving yourself external enzymes, like then is your body going to feel like it doesn't need to make them anymore? So I try to not use that for the long term or like super, um, it's not like my go-to therapy. First, I just try to see what we can do with changing the diet and see how much your, your body can improve just by taking away food-related inflammation, basically. Mm, yeah. That's something I've, I just always wondered. I was like, what are we doing to ourselves with our, with our long-term food restrictions? Um, One more thing about the lactose intolerance. There's a lot of comorbidity with celiac disease and lactose intolerance. And also, um, just personally, I I've, I've have a friend who was temporarily lactose intolerant while on birth control pills. So it's definitely related to like the health 
of your gut um, and not always permanent. So if you are lactose intolerant, you know, sometimes it's just like genetic. <laughs> You're not producing the enzyme like naturally as we age, we produce less. But um, other times it can be because there's something else going on. So people with celiac disease, once their intestines heal, they often t- can become retolerant <laughs> to lactose and consume it. Mm, yeah, definitely. It's something that I found uh, with my own, um, as I've progressed through improving my health and the health of my gut, that I'm definitely able to tolerate dairy a lot better now than what I used to be. Say when I was a kid, I was highly intolerant to dairy. And in fact, um, I was a chronic constipated kid or and adult up until I cleared the excess bacteria but I remember as a child going to the fridge taking a slice of cheese and using that as my as my natural um, laxative because it had an almost immediate impact and that I would literally be eating it walking to the toilet because wow. within minutes I would have diarrhea um, and but that was my self-treatment because I would have been chronic, uh, chronically constipated for say a week prior to that point wow. in time I just didn't know it as a kid I just I would be like oh yeah I'll just go have my cheese <laughs> <laughs> that'll help me go and go and do a poo that's so funny <laughs> uh, I don't have that experience now I can totally eat cheese and not be having to sit on a toilet (laughs) when I'm doing it which is good (laughs) um so you you love working with people with food sensitivities and particularly with people with IBS um and SIBO how do you go about commencing that work with them um in terms of what are your first steps when they come to you saying, I feel really crap and, you know, help? (laughs) That's such a good question as well. Um, So I actually, as part of being um, a certified LEAP therapist, uh, as part of like the training and the materials that you're given, um, there's something called a symptom survey that we use, um, sort of like a sort of standardized. I mean, it hasn't been used in, in research or anything. It's just an internal document that we use as certified leap therapists, but it's really comprehensive and it kind of breaks down the body into different uh, systems. So there's like, how's your digestive system doing? How's your skin? How are your ears? How are your sinuses? Um, how's your mental health? Things like that. It's broken it up into a bunch of different sections. And then we sort of ask them, okay, like I'm going to name a symptom like fatigue, for example, and then you tell me how often this is happening to you over just thinking over the last month. Like, is this something that never happens to you? Is this something that happens to you once a week or two or more times per week? And then do you consider it mild or severe? And then we have like point values. This totally speaks to my research side because this is like what we did in research, like ranking people's uh, symptoms or whatever we were doing and measuring. But we then after we go through all the different symptoms, we tally up their total point score (laughs) to get a good idea of how severe their symptoms are. Um, And typically the more severe and the more widespread. So like If someone's just having migraines or just having diarrhea and no other symptoms, like maybe they're not a great candidate for food sensitivity testing, because if you really are struggling with food sensitivities, it's probably going to be something you're feeling system wide. So you're going to feel fatigue or brain fog or joint pain or just blah, like (laughs) lots of things like some of my IBS clients, um, they have acne as well and they didn't even think that could be related and then we clean up the diet and then their acne goes away so basically the more symptoms and the more widespread the better probability that food sensitivities is playing a role if it's one specific symptom then i might try other things first 
Oh, sorry. And one more thing. Also important, I also make sure to ask if there's any history of disordered eating or things like that, because um, I don't want to put someone on a very restrictive diet if that could be a trigger for them. It's interesting you say that. I've um, just come from an interview with Dr. Melanie Keller, and we did talk about how um, particularly um, those of us that have suffered from eating disorders in the past, as I have done, um, going into a restricted diet for SIBO was a major trigger for disordered eating. And whilst I didn't end up back with bulimia, I was teetering on the edge of, you know, I could really feel that that old side of me wanting to come out and, mm -hmm. and I got very obsessive with my food, very controlling and then very terrified of the reintroduction of food as, as I got to that stage. Yeah. And I think it's really important um, and I'm really glad that you raised it to, to address whether disordered eating might be a problem for somebody. Definitely. And if it is, like, I mean worst case scenario, you really truly are suffering from food sensitivities and you have an eating disorder. Um, so, I mean, there are, of course, cases where I would still want to work with them, but it, it would probably be a modified version of the elimination diet. And then also making sure you're working with their therapist to um, make sure they're supported and not, you know, go in it alone. And given that, um, people with SIBO will often have the same types of symptoms as um, food sensitivity symptoms. How do you know if it's one or the other or is it, is it both? So I, if they're one of their main symptoms is like really bad bloating, then I'll typically suggest <laughs> that they go get tested um, for SIBO because I like to know that <laughs> in advance. Um, I think that SIBO, since, you know, you have an overgrowth of bacteria in your small intestine, like, undeniably it's affecting your GI tract and how you're digesting and absorbing your nutrients. Um, so of course it plays a role. And I personally think that having SIBO can sort of tr like predispose you to then develop more food sensitivities because your immune system's like, what's going on? Like, why are these bacteria here? Like if that's a threat, like what else is a threat? I don't really have like scientific literature to back that up. It's just my personal <laughs> observation. Um, so I personally, like there are other leap therapists who choose to co-treat both at the same time, but I kind of prefer to tackle one thing at a time. So I'll typically recommend that they get tested for SIBO so we at least know if that's a factor and then work with a physician to treat that um, either with antibiotics or herbal antibiotics. And then I'll come in if they're still having symptoms. That's just currently my personal stance, but that might change as if I choose to get more advanced training on um, SIBO and just diet. Um, but yeah, my specialty would be the people who, you know, either they don't have SIBO or they had it and they got treated for it and they still feel bad, then that's sort of my sweet spot. Um, the mystery clients. So they, <laughs> there's nothing technically wrong with them on their labs, but they feel awful. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
And I hear from people uh, saying to me, my numbers are back down to normal levels. You know, I technically don't have SIBO, but I'm still bloating. I'm still constipated or I'm still swinging from constipation to diarrhea. Um, or, you know, before I had diarrhea, now I have constipation. Why has that changed? Um, that they're really noticing flares on their skin or they're still feeling um, that there's brain fog or there's all sorts of things. But technically, there is no SIBO. So, Let's talk about what you do with those with those people because they are listening to the podcast today and they'll be like, oh, tell me what I do. I <laughs> Help me. I know. It's so frustrating, especially like I hear from people all the time. They're like, I went to the doctor and literally there's there's nothing that's coming up anywhere, but I know something's wrong. Like I don't feel well. Um, and, you know, it can be really frustrating. So I always try to tell them that my goal is to just see, you know, obviously I do the symptom survey and see if they'd be a good candidate. Um, and if I think that they, they would be, then I have them do the mediator release testing, which is just a blood test. Um, so basically they'd go get their blood drawn with a kit that I would give them. They, the lab, it's called Oxford um, Biomedical Technologies in Florida. Um, they basically will take your blood sample, divide it up into like 150 different aliquots. Um, and then with each one, um, they'll test how your white blood cells are responding to different food and uh, food antigens and chemicals, which is really cool because that's another unique feature of this test. Like it's not just foods. Um, they're also testing for natural chemicals and artificial chemicals. So, you know, they'll test to see if your white blood cells are reacting to caffeine, which can be cool, or capsaicin, which is like the spicy component, um, or also like um, phenylethylamine, which is like an amine in aged foods that can be a trigger for some, or solanine, which is like the nightshade vegetable family that some people have issues with, like things like that you never think of. Like if you were looking through your food diary, unless you really knew about the different possible triggers, like would you make the connection between eating potato, tomato, eggplant, and bell pepper and feeling crappy? Like that might be hard to spot. Um, so that's nice. And then they also test for some artificial chemicals like preservatives and food dyes um, as well, which, again, is one that's hard to pick out if you're suffering um, from one of those additives because they're so ubiquitous, at least in our food supply here. Um, and then they test 120 different foods. So basically what they're looking at is for a change in the solid to liquid ratio in the solution. So they, they take the food antigen, they mix it with your white blood cells. White blood cells are solid, obviously. Um, and then the rest is like the serum of your blood, the liquid portion. And then if your blood cells see a threat and decide, oh, we need to like neutralize the threat and release the pro-inflammatory cytokines and all that, then they're going to release them into the environment and then shrink. So <laughs> comparatively, there will be more liquid to solid if you had a reaction. So that's what they're doing, obviously using machines. Not They're not like looking at it. Um, <laughs> they're using machines by Sony, actually. They're partnered with Sony um, to measure the, the strength of the response. And then that's also one of the cool things because in the past, like older technology like this um, through other companies like, like AllCat and things like that. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's like an older version <laughs> of this type of test. They didn't show the strength of the response. They just said not reactive or reactive. But of course, like there's a line there and some people might be slightly to the left or slightly to the right. 
and you know you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between something that just barely passed that line and was considered reactive or something that's like off the charts reactive so that's another helpful component of this test so basically we get a printout and that shows you the strength of the inflammatory response for each category like chemicals protein fruits vegetables nuts and legumes things like that and then it's not even so much what you're reactive to that's helpful it's what you're not reactive to. So of course, we're not testing every single food or chemical in the food supply. So rather than being like, oh, you need to avoid this, this, and this, and then you're still eating a bunch of unknown, untested things, like that's not really a great strategy. So what we do is basically a custom elimination diet. So we're looking through the things that were low reactive, like on the lower end of the the low reactive section, picking out things that you're already normally eating in your diet. So we know it's not like a false negative, like your immune system has been seeing this and it's not reacting on this test. Um, So we're going to include about 25 or so of those lowest reactive foods that you're already currently eating. And then that's like all you're going to eat for two weeks. (laughs) So, and sometimes like people don't think about what that really means. Like that means literally only those things. So chicken means like just chicken, not like chicken with injected broth or like, (laughs) I don't know, like little things that you don't think about when you go to the store. Like you just realize how much um, our food supply is modified (laughs) and things are added. Um, So that's my job is to help people pick out, you know, products and things like that, that don't have a bunch of additives like preservatives or flavorings, like quote unquote natural flavoring. Like, I don't know what that is. So let's not include that in the first two weeks. (laughs) Like, So you're eating... You're pretty much cooking your own food for the first two weeks. Um, And I support my clients with recipes and shopping ideas and things like that, which is like my favorite part. (laughs) Um, And during that time, basically what we're doing is basically saying, okay, let's try to take out any food-related inflammation and see how much better you can feel. So most people feel at least a 50% symptom improvement in those first two weeks based on that symptom score that we took when I first met with them. And then once you're feeling better, then you're like, okay, now I can tell if I add something back in and it's going to be a trigger. Um, And usually when you've taken all the reactive things out, you're much more sensitive and able to detect um, when you've eaten something that doesn't sit well with you. So it's kind of wipes out the confusion and like gives you a clear plan. Um, and we also reintroduce foods in a very systematic way. So we start, so for the first two weeks, we're eating your lowest reactive foods and we're working our way up the reactive bars. So the first, you know, couple weeks that you're adding in more foods, like it's really unlikely that any of those are going to be a problem. So you expand your diet pretty quickly. You're keeping a food log this entire time in case something goes wrong and like you start feeling worse. Like then my job is to be the detective and be like, okay, like, what could it be? Like, I don't know. I've had people where they didn't realize there was palm oil in the peanut butter they bought. <laughs> and they're like, oh, no. Like, <laughs> so it's really, really got to read the labels um, or like buying dried cranberries. Like it's often uh, processed with sunflower oil and it's just the little things. And so <laughs> it's my job to be the, the food detective basically and be like, oh, check the label on that thing you added. And then usually we can figure it out from there. Um, and then I think another really important thing to touch on, kind of related to the difference between allergies and sensitivities, sensitivities aren't permanent. (laughs) Um, So a lot of people, you know, they see these tests, like maybe an IgG-based test online, and they're like, oh, cool, like there's even one out there now where it's like 
prick your finger and we'll tell you everything you're sensitive to with like one drop of blood and people are like oh that's so cool um but it's not really like clinically useful um for the reasons i mentioned before and that it's not taking the whole picture um but also the worst thing you could do is to get these results back even the results from the type of test i do the which is a common endpoint test like looking to see whether your body's creating inflammation it doesn't mean that it's going to be doing that to those foods forever so you don't want to look at these results and be like oh i came back reactive to apple like i'm never eating it again like that's not the point <laughs> the point is to strategically change the diet to be more anti-inflammatory for you right at this moment and then start to try to take away that inflammation so the body can heal and then we work on adding those reactive foods back in later on down the line three months for moderately reactive foods and six months for high reactive foods um, and I would say like in my experience I don't want to speak for everyone but um, like 75% of those reactive foods people are able to find like their individual tolerance level too so like if they came back reactive to tomato they take it out for three months and then it comes time to try tomato again maybe like a few tomatoes in their salad or on their sandwich or something not a problem bowl of tomato soup for lunch every day of the week like oh that's too much like <laughs> you find you kind of find your personal tolerance level um so i really 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 try to stress like the long-term goal is variety in the diet because again another thing to consider if you just keep like provoking your immune system with the same food antigen like again and again like I'm gonna eat this same food every single day like for months and months like you're like poking the bear kind of like <laughs> waiting for your immune system to be like oh like this thing's always here like what's going on like more likely to develop a sensitivity to something that you're just overloading your body with so I really really focus on variety <laughs> and like kind of rotating foods in your diet for the long-term plan um, and then, yeah, finding your individual tolerance level for any of those reactive foods. But I, there are usually like maybe 20, 25 percent of the things like there's just no like you notice no matter what level of intake, you just it doesn't sit well with you. So that, that can happen. But um, I think a common misconception is that these foods have to be avoided forever like an allergy. And that's that's not the case. It's quite interesting um, with you mentioning that if we keep sort of feeding the, the, the body the same food that it's in the end it's going to be like hey go away I'm sick of you <laughs> and I hear from those people that are that say to me I, I used to be able to eat these foods fine now I can't now I'm down to nothing even water bothers me now now I have a flare with even drinking a glass of water and and that's you know it's so disheartening to hear when people are in that kind of flared state why is it so important for us to reduce the inflammation and the immune response that's happening in the body when it comes to food like, why is it triggering symptoms, kind of? Yeah, like, why do we need to reduce that? Um, why is that important for yeah. health? So, so this is kind of comparing the prevalence of um, food allergies and food sensitivities. So, you know, maybe only like 5% of the population has a true allergy, whereas estimates are up to like 40% of the population has food sensitivity issues. Um, so, I mean, it's still not the majority of people. So there, I mean, this isn't something that like necessarily everyone needs to be running out and doing. Like that's why I, I try to screen people um, and see if they're a good candidate. But I mean, truly, this is for the people who feel awful. Like a lot of my clients, they like they've left their jobs because they can't get out of bed they can't go to work they can't be away from a toilet um or you know they dropped out of school for a semester and it's like 
what is going on? Like, I really need to figure this out. Um, and those are the people where it's really going to make an impact. Like, you know, a month in, they're like, oh, I finally had the energy to like play guitar again and like socialize with my friends. And I'm not like constantly near a bathroom. Um, yeah, so it's it's not so much like something that like, the average healthy person probably needs to worry about. Um, but for the people who are really ill and traditional medicine is kind of saying, we don't know what's going on. Um, I think those are the people who are more likely to be suffering from food-related inflammation that's actually more like at the root of what's causing their symptoms. Um, and then making dietary changes based on the results is like a significant way to see relief. I think there's going to be quite a few aha moments happening with my <laughs> listeners today, especially just with you even talking about have people having to give up work or stop socialising because I know that some of my listeners are at that place right now and it's it's not much fun and I, you know, I always want to just go give them a big cuddle because uh, <laughs> it's a horrible place to be at where life has really had to go on pause while yeah. you're feeling so rotten. Yeah. Which is really unfortunate. We don't want anybody to be there. Um, can you... Um, improve your um, can you improve the nutrients that are going into your body um, just by food alone or do we need to be healing the gut in order for the nutrients to be truly absorbed I think it definitely depends on you know the the unique person and what they're going through Um, so I don't know like for some of my clients maybe who are migraine sufferers for example um, I might be looking at different things than someone else who's suffering from diarrhea or um, Crohn's disease or something like that. Um, But yeah, if there's anything going on with the gut, I definitely, I definitely recommend gut healing supplements um, as part of my protocol, but after I'm done with the food sensitivity stuff. So my general strategy is to use the diet change first as a windshield wiper, which is a great analogy. I think Um, my mentor, Susan Link, um, came up with this, but I think she came up with it. But it's basically like, you know, if we're dealing with something here that has potentially multiple contributing factors or causes or things that are making you feel bad, how much can we take away by just reducing inflammation from the diet? And then what's left? And then we can strategically target those leftover symptoms. So I found that personally to be really, really effective. So um, like if I have a client to like, for example, an acne client where they change their diet and everything but the acne is improving, that's a sign that maybe it's maybe more hormonal or something. And I would give some suggestions to go see their physician and like you should ask about XYZ questions uh, with your doctor and maybe get these different um, blood tests to see if there's something more going on like PCOS or something like that. Um, If your gut's severely damaged, that's definitely going to impair your ability to not develop new sensitivities and for one thing and also your ability to digest and absorb your food. So that's definitely gut healing is a big part of what I do afterwards. I usually my my go to like one two punch is (laughs) food sensitivity testing and then diet therapy to see how much improvement we can get there. And then I also really strongly recommend that people get tested for any nutrient deficiencies. Um, I use I use SpectraCell in my practice. It's a company here um, in the US and they they check for a whole bunch of different uh, vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and things like that. Um, that your traditional doctor probably isn't running in your regular blood panels. So that gives me a really good insight. Like, for example, 
I had a client who was very reactive to foods. Like it was a little bit, um, a little bit weird. Like his overall reactivity was very, very high um, to the point where he didn't have very many food options that were low reactive to even do the elimination diet with. So he also got spectrocell tested um, and turns out he was deficient in glutamine, which I'm sure your listeners and you are familiar with is very important um, for the integrity of the gut lining. So that was like a really cool, like aha moment. Like, okay, you're probably more reactive because your gut is, you know, quote unquote leaky or, you know, not strong. The integrity of your gut lining is not strong. So yeah, I use that um, kind of as a finishing touch. (laughs) Like if people are deficient in vitamin D, you know, that Um, can increase their risk of getting or having um, different autoimmune disorders, things like that. Uh, It's not like a cause relationship. There's just a a link there between being deficient in vitamin D and having more autoimmunity issues. So it's important to address if that is going on. It's interesting that you talk about um, vitamins and minerals at the Integrative SIBO conference, which was just uh, this past weekend in um, Chicago. One of the speakers was talking about how they'll often start with looking at what deficiencies exist in the body before even going through the full SIBO testing because they want to see where they're, you know, the, that first layer and support with um you know, minerals and vitamin therapy to at least get them back to a certain base level to then commence the next layer of work. And they see it as like peeling back an onion. A thousand percent. I think it's up to the practitioner to really decide where to start. I choose to start with the food sensitivity stuff because I know the awesome results I get in like two weeks. So I'm like, if you, I know the main thing for you is you want to feel better. So I'm going to start there. It might not be the full picture. You might not get back to a hundred percent with just the diet change, but it's going to be enough where you feel significant relief. And then we can kind of, you know, peel back the other layers from there. And like you say, I think it's um, so individual on the patient, the practitioner, for sure. um, what the patient outcomes, what the patient desires as the outcome, what their number one thing is that they want to feel immediately. So for some patients like myself, it was, I want to eat really great food. That's my number one thing. I want to get there really quickly. And uh, my next thing was I want to get less bloated. And then the other things like joint pain, brain fog, all of that, that was so far down my list. I didn't care about those things. For me, it was food, number Mm -hmm. one. (laughs) That's a great, great point. Yeah. So it's definitely meeting the the client where they're at and you know, devising the right plan to get accomplish their goals. Yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of um, what you see as an outcome, do people get back to 100% health or are they sitting more 75, 80, 85, 90%? Um, you know, what, what are your outcomes that you're seeing with your patients or your clients? I think it depends on the person and like what the root cause of the um, – of the health issue was, but, and I've only been doing this for like a year and a half. So I only have a year and a half worth of uh, clients to think about in terms of the longevity of my interventions. But um, I would say it continues to improve with time, but I think that time is probably the biggest help. Like if you continue to heal slowly, like, I don't know, I just had like a seventh month, seven month check-in with a client and uh, she's, felt each month we check in basically she's feeling better so 
this person is a, a headache person. <laughs> so, you know, when we first started out, maybe reduced her headaches from every single day to, you know, one headache free day a week. And now, you know, seven months later, it's like one headache every 12 days type of thing. So it's gradual. It definitely was a gradual progression to get there, at least in this person's case. Um, but yeah, I would say I try to take a long term view and I'm like, you know, you can't, there's a few things I like to say. I like to say, you can't jump on a horse and ride in all directions at once. So, you know, we have a lot of things we might want to address and hit upon, but we want to kind of do it in a systematic order and that takes time. So even the, just the elimination diet takes a couple months. So, um, yeah. I think sometimes we're unfortunately, um, really taken in by the grandiose claims by marketers for products and pills and potions saying you'll take this and you'll feel amazing immediately and so when it comes to returning to health I think that all of us can um, you know suffer from that desire to want to feel better immediately I changed my diet today I want to feel better tomorrow I started taking these herbal antibiotics oh my god I just said herbal I've been in this states for too long herbal (laughs) no I'm such a chameleon with my accent that I change really quickly. It's terrible. I'm going to, next time my podcast listeners listen to me, I'll be speaking with a full-blown American accent. <laughs> um, but, you know, you want to, you think, oh, I just took the first round of herbs and uh, and I will feel a better, like, straight away. And when we don't, we can often feel really hard done by and also really down on ourselves because we think there must be something wrong with me because I haven't had a great improvement, significant improvement. Yet what we sometimes forget to see is, like you said, I've gone from headaches every single day to having headaches six days a week. We've just had an improvement. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. And another, I'm thinking of another person um, I recently chatted with, but you know, even one month into the, the working with me, she was still sort of questioning, like, is this really even doing anything? Um, And then, you know, if you over time, you know, she stuck with it and she completed the elimination diet and everything um, and even, you know, did some traveling and liberalized her diet a little bit and was like, oh, like I do notice a difference like when I'm, you know, eating more liberalized versus when I'm eating um, foods that I know sit well with me currently. So that was an aha moment. Um, And even just looking back in time, you know, like three months later, it's like, wow, I've really come far and I do feel a lot better. Um, But in the moment, like one month in, it was like, just keep going, like keep sticking with it. We'll get you better. Like, you know, it's a process. It is. Yeah. And one month can feel like an eternity oh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and just for my final question is around, um, there are plenty of restricted diets out there, particularly ones that people with SIBO follow. What's your view around us being very restricted in our eating if we don't have an allergy? I, I understand why we want to avoid foods if there is a true allergy there. But um, should we be going on these long-term restricted diets or should the goal be to be eating as broadly as possible? I definitely think the goal should be eating as broadly as possible for a number of reasons, Um, unless you truly obviously have an allergy or like an autoimmune disorder like celiac disease, where eating that food is actually physically causing you harm. (laughs) Um, I I mean, just in my experience, people have been able to liberalize their diets with time um, and rotating in foods at a more um, uh, moderate level. (laughs) So not over consuming any one food, but rather, you know, keeping the diet varied, um, 
eating seasonally helps. Eating different types of cuisines is something I recommend. Like do like Taco Tuesday or like, I don't know, have um, Chinese food on Wednesday and then maybe Indian food on Thursday because you're eating like different cuisines and exposing your body to different foods and seasonings and things like that, which is great. I mean, for your enjoyment and also great for the different nutrients and the things that those different foods provide. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I have gotten a qu- the question before, like people being like, oh, I thought your body liked the same thing day in and day out. Like it's always going for homeostasis. And I'm like, well, yeah, like internally, you know, with, you know, uh, regulating things like blood sugars or, you know, um, calcium levels or things like that. Yes, it's, it's definitely trying to maintain a homeostatic level. But um, with the foods that you're eating, I've personally found that it's much better to eat a variety of foods um, long term. And I um, now I'm able to eat, as, as an example, with time, I'm now able to have a really broad and varied diet, whereas for many years I was getting more and more restricted with my foods and since uh, clearing up the SIBO and also eliminating some of those foods. And now I wish I'd had been able to do the test that you do, but I did do the IgA, IgG test. Uh, eggs and cane sugar came back as highly problematic. So I avoided eggs for um, strictly for about nine months. And now I can eat eggs. I don't eat them every day. I was eating them sometimes a couple of times a day. I was a bit egg crazy for a while. Um, but it's really lovely to be able to eat really broad and variety and uh, and not experience those digestive symptoms or broader body symptoms that I once did. Yes. It's a great place to get to. So happy for you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So Erica, if people would like to connect with you, how can they um, find you? Yeah. um, Well, the main place would be my website, uh, ericajolson.com, just my full name. Um, I'm also on Instagram. I'm posting recipes on there a lot, but I was late to the Instagram game. So it's Erica underscore Jolson underscore. (laughs) There's many Erica Jolsons on Instagram, apparently. Um, And then, yeah, I would say those are the two main uh, sources. Or you can always email me, Erica at ericajolson.com. And if people would like to do further reading or um, uh, look up more information around food sensitivities and and also the testing that you do, do you have any um, resources that you've got for people or recommendations? um, I have a few articles on my own website um, that people would probably find helpful. Um, There's also a lot more information if you go to nowleap.com is the website for the MRT testing. Um, Also, my mentor, Susan Link, has some great YouTube videos where she kind of explains with drawings, like exactly what's going on with food sensitivities um, and the strategy behind a custom elimination diet. So if you just go on YouTube and Google Susan Link, S-U-S-A-N-L-I-N-K-E, a bunch of great videos should pop up. yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So that's um, that's great, and all those links are in the show notes. Um, if anybody would like to click on them. So Erica, it's been just a joy to have you come on the show today and talk about food sensitivities. Um, and you know, I've learned a lot. I'm sure my listeners have. So thanks so much for coming on the Healthy Gut Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Erica Julson. You can just tell how passionate she is around supporting people with food sensitivities and uh, and she's just an absolute joy to sit and have a chat with. If you would like to access the full transcription or the show notes or any links mentioned in today's podcast, just simply head to thehealthygut.co forward slash sensitivities. And there you will find all of the information from today's show. Don't forget to leave a rating and review in iTunes. I love hearing your feedback. It really helps me to know whether I am putting on the kind of shows that you would like to see. And come say hi to us on our Facebook Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google Plus pages. Just look for us under The Healthy Gut. Coming up for episode 30 of The Healthy Gut podcast, we are joined by Dr. Lisa Shaver, who joins us to talk all about celiac disease. And it's just a wonderful episode with Dr. Lisa Shaver. I really look forward to sharing that with you next week. You've been listening to The Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about The Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.